0: My friends, it is through the establishment of the lovely clarity of mindfulness that you can let go of grasping after past and future, overcome attachment and grief, abandon all clinging and anxiety and awaken to an unshakable freedom of heart here and now. That's one of my favorite current kind of modern translations of some of the Buddha's words on mindfulness. It's it's like that's such an invitation that there's a quality, uh, a way of being that can be cultivated that releases the past and the future, that overcomes the attachment and the grief, that abandons the clinging and anxiety freedom. Here's a traditional uh, interpretation of a a similar quote from the Satipatthana Sutta, the Middle Length Discourses number 10. So this is translated by Venerable Anilayo, who teaches a lot here. He's one of our kind of foremost Western monastic translators of these times. Uh, bhikkhus, which can be translated as a group of practitioners for our purposes. Bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for the acquiring of true method, for the realization of nibbana, namely, these four foundations of mindfulness. So whether we've been practicing with these four foundations for intensively for a month, uh, or we knew them coming in here, they're a life practice, they are a foundational practice in our tradition. Uh, Sylvia Borstein retranslates that into the four perspectives on mindfulness. I like to work a lot with language and, and uh, kind of give different interpretations. And, and I really encourage you all to continue to find the language that lands you in your own direct experience. Because inevitably, some of the words that are used or the examples or the metaphors won't land. Uh, and we've really got a choice there. And on one hand, we can struggle with it. And you know, be confused and doubting and, you know, blaming and, and all the stuff that we do when we struggle. On the other hand, we can go, ah, that doesn't quite land. Maybe I can translate this a different way that lands. So these four perspectives on mindfulness, the body, uh, number two is sometimes translated as feeling tones, three tones of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. Uh, the third is uh, states of mind, you know, flavors of mind. And the fourth is, um, we could call, it's often called the Dhammas, but really what falls under it are so many of the different teachings and practices that we engage in while we're here. And so we'll be exploring these uh, for the rest of this retreat, as we have been in the first half of the retreat. And so tonight is body It's definitely right on time. Here we are. And when we stop, when we stop the endless distraction, when we stop the endless speed, and also when we dive deeper and deeper and deeper, what we start to notice is, oh, there is a body, and it's calling out in various different beautiful ways and various different difficult ways, right? So I want to open with a story and in a way, this story is, you could say it's one of a 100 examples of culmination of really hard-won body wisdom. Because for me, like I know some of you, coming into this body, arriving here, inhabiting this elemental form of earth, air, fire, and water was not an easy thing. I lived from here up. A lot of us did or do Uh, we can drop down, it is possible. I really feel like, uh, given the struggles that I had and how impossible it seemed, uh, because I came onto the meditation path in chronic pain, number one, uh, with a tremendous amount of um, emotional difficulty, number two, and then grew up in a culture that really encouraged from the head up, number three. And so it was a hard journey for me. And so, you know, please um, feel free to borrow my trust when it feels impossible. It really may be possible more and more and more to be here in this precious human body. This is the vehicle we got to wake up in. Not a different one, this one. I know. <laughs> we wish otherwise sometimes, huh? Yeah. So story that's just a few years old, about half a dozen years old. And yeah, it was was the last time I was um, studying and traveling and practicing in India, actually. And so I was there for a period of months and basically during my time there, I was receiving teachings and then studying and then going into retreat and receiving teachings and studying and going into retreat and traveling around to different places to um, receive these teachings. And so at one point, I ended up in the foothills of the Himalayas. And unlike here in the United States, where the foothills might be a 1,000 to 3,000 feet, uh, the Himalayas, the foothills are 4,000 to 8,000 feet. Just to give you kind of a context. And so I was uh, staying for a time in a small village and in this small village, there was a small, sacred lake. The reason I knew it was sacred was because when I arrived and I was orienting myself to my new environment, I ran into folks and they said, Oh, you need to circumambulate that lake because it's blessed, it's sacred. So you need to walk around it. And so I did because I was orienting myself to the new place. And it's very interesting. This lake, um, and there are many, many sacred lakes in India. I mean, honestly, in our heart of hearts, I mean, water is a sacred element. If we don't have it, there's a problem, right? So we wanna take care, and we can take care physically with the elements, but we can also take care energetically and with our hearts and our blessings. And so I'd walk around this sacred lake and other people would be walking around the lake. And it was very interesting. Some people would be walking around along the lake, just checking in. There'd be women walking in pairs or threes and fours. And you could tell that they were just catching up on each other's lives and walking around this lake. Other people, um, there was a Tibetan temple there, Vajrayana temple. So some of the Tibetan community in exile lived there, and so they would walk around a lot of the um, a lot of the people from that community, and they'd be doing their malas, Om oh, Mani Padme Hom, Om oh, Mani Padme Hom, Om oh, Mani Padme Hom. These blessings, and that that mantra is a blessing of compassion. So it's this blessing of compassion. Kids would be running around the lake. There's all kinds of stuff happening. There were packs of dogs that lived there. There were monkeys that lived there. And one of my favorite things to do actually when I lived there was um, watch out of the guest house that I lived in. There was a, a Vajrayana temple, a Tibetan temple. And the roof of the temple was metal and it was a perfect slide for the baby monkeys. Perfect, and so they would climb up to the top, and they would slide down, and it dipped up at the end, so it sort of caught them, so that they didn't fall three stories down. And I kid you not, every once in a while, I heard them go "wee." <laughs> I never knew that monkeys could "wee," but but they do. Not just not just like that. I'm not a good um, imitator of a monkey, but but what I heard in my human and 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 with English as the first language, was whee! You know? And so they were having fun. Um, and so one day uh, it was suggested to me that I make offerings in this sacred lake. And so what you could do was, uh, it was a way of offering your, your blessings, your presence. And so there was a, a woman, a mother, who was by the side of the lake and her children were there and you could buy these special uh, fish cookies. I'm not sure how good they were for the fish, but but that was what you did. You bought the special fish cookies, and then you'd go offer your blessings and, and feed the fish. Okay, So um, I decided that that was something I wanted to participate in. A lot of people were doing it. It was also a way of supporting that family, you know, because it was part of the way that they made their living. So I connected with the kids, bought the cookies, And then I'm walking through the last part of town and a shopkeeper came to the door of his shop. And um, I had been by a few days before, so there was a little bit of a connection. It's a very small town. And he came out and waved and I waved back and uh, then he said, "Uh, Ma'am! Ma'am! Monkey! And I thought, oh, he's pointing out the monkeys, you know, that the baby monkeys are sliding, this is, you know. I said, thank you, monkey, monkey. And he pointed, and I sort of glanced over, oh, yeah, monkey, okay. Uh, and then and they said, ma'am, ma'am, monkey. And I thought, yeah, you already pointed out the monkey. Is there another monkey? Or wasn't? I was kind of confused what was going on. But I looked over, and there was this monkey coming from over here. And as I really looked over, I was like, oh, that's a rather large monkey. It was kind of far away. I thought, okay, there's a rather large monkey over there. I'm glad I know it's there. And I keep walking, totally unconscious of the fact that I'm carrying fish cookies. Okay? And so this monkey's coming, and I'm aware of it, but it's far away, and monkey's getting closer and it's getting bigger as it gets closer. As it gets really closer, I'm not exaggerating, the monkey's like about this big, okay? So it's a rather large monkey. And then I notice that there are monkeys coming from this direction and that direction and there's a convergence and all of a sudden I realize the convergence is on me. (laughs) So my nervous system went through the roof you know, you could feel the heart start pounding. You could feel the energy move up, and I'm looking. And you know how you have those thoughts when you start to get really scared and it's like a physical circumstance of fear that are just really, really clear thoughts? Uh, the clear thought that came through in that moment was I know that some monkeys in these, this area carry rabies, and the nearest rabies shot is 15 hours away. That was the thought that went through my mind, okay? So I really wish that I could tell you that I had this incredibly powerful, mindful moment, uh, that that, like the Buddha with the mad elephant, uh, Nalagiri with the radiation of loving kindness, all the monkeys stopped. That is so not what happened. What happened was I screamed at the top of my lungs, I threw the cookies as far away from my body as possible, this direction, and I ran like hell the other direction. That's what actually happened. This was not a moment of looking good in the life of Heather. Okay. But when the nervous system gets activated and the body goes into protection, it does what it has to do, and from a personality level, sometimes it looks good and sometimes it doesn't look good it's like that, right? So, first foundation of mindfulness, right? Um, This is the the Satipatthana Sutta. The four foundations of mindfulness, body being the first. So Sati is uh, awareness. uh, Tana is getting established. And Patthana is in the proper way. I like to think of this as awareness getting established in a wise way, the proper way. It includes wisdom. So in the first foundation of mindfulness of the body, um, it covers a lot. If you had all night, I really would cover it all. I actually teach whole retreats on this. I'm so passionate on it, but we don't have all night makes me smile, though. Uh, The main teacher from Thailand I studied with for many years, uh, he would actually start his Dharma teaching at 7 p.m. And if we were lucky, we would get a bathroom break at 11 p.m. or midnight. So if you ever feel like the talks go on too long during this retreat, it could be worse. (laughs) Okay. Oh, it can be worse, it can be better, good enough. Yeah. So just the headlines. The first foundation of mindfulness includes mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness in the four postures, mindfulness in all activities. It includes the teaching and practice of the 32 parts of the body. And sometimes the simple way that that gets practiced is through um, a body scan uh, from head to toe, either sitting or standing. It includes the elements. Uh, when somebody asked the Buddha, well, what is a body? I said, ah, oh, the body is made of these four great elements, earth, air, fire, and water. So we can practice with those. And then the last is the nine charnel ground contemplations this acknowledgement in practice with the body of its impermanence and its preciousness and the fact that it is falling apart. So tonight we'll be focusing on one of the aspects of mindfulness of breathing, calming the bodily formation, the refrain of the sutta, which is sort of like the chorus line, and it evokes the wisdom that can be found through the body, at least one expression of it. We'll work a little bit with some of the kind of, what I think of as the underserved postures, the ones that don't get so much attention. And then we'll see if we have time for anything else. But I promise we will not be here till 11 p.m., okay? You happy? Huh? If you're not happy for the whole rest of the day, you can be happy about that. <laughs> so the body is a teacher This really famous quote from the Buddha. In this fathom long body, the whole of the Dhamma is revealed. So I have a mind that gets curious about famous quotes and teachings and what's the backstory? What's the context? Because I heard that for years, you might have too. In this fathom long body, the whole of the Dharma is revealed. So what's the backstory? Where did that come from? Here's one version of the backstory. Very interesting. Uh, One of the main characters in this story is a deva. And uh, a deva in the kind of Buddhist cosmology represents unseen, you could say unseen benevolent forces. Uh, In Western culture, we could say cousin to an angel, but not the same. Not different, not the same. It's one of those paradoxes. So you can hold this literally or metaphorically as you wish. Once upon a time, a deva called Rohita once passed in front of the monastery where the Buddha was sitting. And this deva was singing, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking, keep walking questioned by the Buddha, the deva-rohita said that he was walking to explore the entire world and then beyond. So that was their uh, spiritual practice, to explore the entire world and then beyond. And the Buddha smiled and explained that the entire universe, its cause, its cessation, and the way to its cessation are found within the framework of the body. The whole of the Dhamma is revealed. So back to India. I'm sure it's fairly clear to a lot of us that what happened when I threw the cookies that way and screamed at the top of my lungs and ran like hell the other direction, that's a flight response, nervous system-wise. So it could have been a fight response, but I don't have the conditioning to fight a monkey in my life. So, you know, a different response came. It could have been freeze. It happened to be flight. What I was interested in, though, in the aftermath of that event, and obviously I'm fine, right, because I'm here, so I made it. (laughs) It's interesting, from a nervous system perspective, sometimes we go through things, and then they're over, and we sort of go, oh, I'm fine. And deep in the bodily formation, the system is not totally clear that it's over. So it's important to say, I made it, I'm fine. Survival happened. But what, was, what I was interested in is what didn't happen. And not in terms of the fact that I didn't get taken out by a monkey, but what didn't happen was judgment. Oh, because the part I didn't tell you is I didn't just scream and run, I screamed and ran, and then all the shopkeepers came to their doors. So there are about 15 shopkeepers and people are poking their heads out of windows because this is a small town. No, there's not a lot going on. So when somebody screams, everybody comes. And here I am, this, you know, big, white, Western woman screaming and running. And as a personality type, I kind of like to be in the background, kind of introverted. It was embarrassing, you know. Uh, I made a scene in a small Indian town. It wasn't my intention, it just went down that way. But it was interesting because as I started orienting and and they started chasing off the monkeys and the monkeys were, were going and, and I got assistance for which I'm really grateful. And instead of falling into that pit of embarrassment and shame and kind of freeze and selfing and what have I done and what are they thinking of me? People were kind of laughing would have been easy to think, oh, they're laughing at me. I started orienting and looking around and just realizing, oh, you know what? They're not judging me. They're trying to help. And they're trying to connect. But if I hadn't oriented and really looked around and seen what was going on, it would have been easy to fall in that pit, right? So I thought that was really interesting. And that allowed me to see it as a nervous system response instead of a personal failing of mine to run, right? It's like, oh, it's just a nervous system response. It happens, right? There's a body, there's a nervous system, it's like this. So calming the bodily formation is part of the first foundation of mindfulness that falls under mindfulness of breathing. share it with you. Um, Again, the translation is by Venerable Analayo. Breathing in long, one knows I breathe in long. Breathing out long, one knows I breathe out long. Breathing in short, one knows I breathe in short. Breathing out short, one knows I breathe out short. One trains thus, I shall breathe in experiencing the whole body. One trains thus, I shall breathe out experiencing the whole body. One trains thus, I shall breathe in calming the bodily formation. One trains thus, I shall breathe out calming the bodily formation. So of course, things are repeated so that they're easier to remember. Uh, um, there's there's part of the kind of tendency of mind and the repetition, it stays, right? And that's why it's really important that we pay attention to what we're thinking because what we repeat to ourselves over and over and over for the good and for the ill tends to stay, it tends to linger, right? So, Ajahn Suchito, who's one of the kind of current masters, Western masters in the Thai force tradition, uh, who I appreciate very much, he talks about the bodily formation as bodily energy and connects it, that bodily energy with the nervous system, which has been really helpful to me in my own Dharma practice and then has um, allowed the body of teaching to grow in terms of our understanding of mindfulness of the body. So I wanted to share with you a couple quotes by Ajahn Suchito. Modern life is backless, parentheses, use a chair. Legless, parentheses, use wheels. And segmented, parentheses, we live in the upper 10% of our bodies most of the time. Most people don't experience a whole balanced body. The body they experience is formed day after day by the impact of images from screens or the shock effect of stress. That needs to be addressed and undone. So being here is one way we can address it start to encourage it to unwind. Here's another quote, Uh, and by the way, this is um, from Ajahn Suchito's blog, so Modern Monastics These Days blog. Another memo, at the level of energy, mind and body are not separate. They use the same nervous system Therefore, stressed body equals stressed mind. And easing the whole body equals easing the whole mind. The mark of wholeness is that which is encompassed by receptive awareness. This is where we return to health and sanity. Therefore, we spread attention carefully over the body. And by connecting awareness to the breathing, we take its qualities through the whole of the psychosomatic, reactive, affective, habit-forming release potential we call me. Did you get that last part? (laughs) I actually memorized this, I love it so much. So it's really nice to have a shorthand, me, but if you like a long hand, the psychosomatic, reactive, affected, habit-forming release potential, me. Lots of different ways to say the same thing. So um, what I'd like to share with you all tonight and and also tomorrow morning in the instructions are a few practices. Some of you probably already know them. Uh, Some of you will need them now or soon. I think it's a fair risk to say that all of us will need them at some point. Probably in this retreat definitely in a life, you know? And I would also say it's likely that one may land for you more than the others. So lean into where it lands and don't worry about where it doesn't, okay? Everything in its season, right? So the backstory on these practices uh, includes uh, another kind of elder in the, spirit, the wider spiritual world. And that elder's name is Peter Levine. Uh, Peter Levine is, is very aligned and attuned with the Buddhist path, but he's much better known as uh, a scientist and therapist and founder of what we call somatic experiencing. And somatic experiencing is a mindfulness body-based psychotherapy that supports nervous systems to re-regulate and to complete trauma. So that's fantastic for when we need that, but some of these foundational tools, all nervous systems could be supported by at various times. We don't necessarily need some big trauma history to be supported. Uh, This is for all bodies, all minds, as much as it lands for you and resonates for you. So I'll share a few of these. Um, And I've really tied them together with this sutta and with the instructions that we tend to give in meditation so that it's a weave, right? The first one is called orienting. And for me, this practice fits in with the kind of beginning part of the satipatthana sutta, And at the very beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, there's this word here. It's like here. The Pali word is ida. ida means here. And so I started to get curious huh? Well, that sounds great, here. I'd like to be here. It'd be good to be here. How do we actually get here and stay here? Not just it's a great idea, but how? And I feel like this is one of many invitations into a deeper sense of here, this orienting practice. So um, instead of talking about it, I think it's more useful to to do it, as as many of you feel willing. All it actually needs are a semi-functional pair of eyes and a semi-functional neck. If your neck's not so happy and you can turn the whole body, that works too. You make it work for your vehicle for awakening. Your body, okay? Um, And it's kind of interesting because, on one hand, we're keeping um, our kind of attention internal in this retreat. And on the other hand, what I'm about to invite is really including the whole field and the external and looking around. And so we just start to look around a little bit. You know, we don't need to so much like engage with each other looking around, but like, look at this amazing hall. So it's like include looking up in the ceiling. It's phenomenal. It's so beautiful. You wanna be looking around to either side, and you wanna actually turn all the way around and land your um, eyes on the back exit. The nervous system loves to know where the exit is. I know you know where the exit is. The nervous system wants to know. So this is from the inside. So we're not top-down telling ourselves what's so. And there's actually four exits in here. So land your eyes on all four. And The nervous system's just like, yeah, just in case. I know where to go. I know where to go. I uh, can look behind you. The hardest part about these practices is working with the adult mind that goes, I already know this stuff, I don't need to do this stuff. That's the hardest part. Uh, Total humility practice, right? So, we start to orient a little bit, and it's like something inside goes, oh, I'm here. I'm not caught in the story of somewhere else some other time. I just looked. I'm here, in this room. So, in times in the retreat, like, let's say you're in a sitting meditation, and um, strong emotion comes up, strong, difficult emotion comes up, and... You work with all your baseline tools that you already know and it's still really really going and really really going there may be a point where you want to actually just open your eyes and look around land your eyes on the exits enjoy a view out the window or in the front pleasant feeling tone second foundation just take a couple moments even right now, just land your eyes on, you know, your favorite color or something that has a kind of pleasant tone to you in here. It's like, oh, oh, my leg's killing me, but this view, pleasant feeling tone, okay, like that. That's the first practice. Uh-huh you start to get um, a little bit spacey at some point in the retreat. Very common thing to have happen. Every time you walk into a new room, orient, look around, make sure you've really arrived. helps with the spaciness, balance out the energy. Uh, Second practice, Uh, sometimes called resourcing, sometimes I just call it grounding. And to me, the connection with this practice with The Dharma tradition goes all the way back to Siddhartha's Enlightenment story. And there's kind of several different versions and and levels of detail that Siddhartha's Enlightenment story gets told. And I'm going to just go right to the punchline and not tell the whole story this evening. But we know in terms of the headlines of that story that, that after great spiritual sincerity and rigor that Siddhartha plants the body under the Buddha tree, under the Bodhi tree in what's now called Gaya, India, with this incredible resolve, I'm going to sit here until I awaken. Full stop. And when we evoke our spiritual power at that level, everything comes. (laughs) And in the case of the experience of Siddhartha, and it's a very archetypal spiritual story, everything came that would interfere with that full expression of awakening shining forth. It's all the different energies whether those are energies of, of greed or lust or anger or fear, uh, all the permutations, they came. They came to visit to say, hey, what about this? And we know this from sitting here. We sit here and we just planted ourselves, you know, we're in a catalyst here. It's like, here I am, everything's coming In a way we've rolled out the welcome mat, even though it's not always all welcome, right? But just by being here, in a way we've rolled out the welcome mat. And so the kind of pivotal moment in the story is when that archetypal um, kind of fetter of um, energy of doubt comes. I always think of it as who do you think you are to be sitting under this Bodhi tree thinking you're going to get enlightened? It's going to be somebody else some other time, right? And we've all had our version of that. And in this case, because it's Siddhartha who um, becomes the Buddha, it's really that deep, deep holding of what's sometimes called conceit. Um, Again, not the greatest translation. This sense of self that is better than, less than, the same as. And it really, it holds us in captivity. Deeply, deeply holds us in captivity. And so that's starting to get activated in this sense of doubt, I can't do this. Who do you think you are to do this? And what does he do, right? What does he do? It's like we have this Buddha Rupa, this image of the statue, puts the hand on the earth, takes refuge with this power greater than ourselves, right? The earth, the earth element. So to me the grounding practice, the resourcing practice is a way that we can do that often and repeated. And really take our stand and say, hey, things are moving and there's ground. And we're taking refuge and we're calling in the blessings and saying, you know what, I'm here, I'm here. So here's the practice. It's fairly simple. Um, The acknowledgement behind this practice is that we have four what I call portals for releasing reactivity. And the four portals are the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. So um, you don't have to do that, but I'd like to invite you to choose either the palms of your hands or the soles of your feet. If your feet hurt, use your hands. If your hands hurt, use your feet. If they all hurt, sits bones and upon occasion I've had to actually have a conversation with somebody to find the right spot because of intense chronic pain you know. So if that's you in this cycle of your body you feel free to drop me a line and we'll figure it out if you need this practice because maybe it's one of the other ones that's better for you. But we're choosing our hands and our feet and we're just taking a moment to feel the field of sensations that tell us that we have hands and feet. So there's the label hands or feet and then there's the sensations that tell us. And we're gonna look at these sensations from an elemental level. So we might be on the lookout for heat or cold fire element heavy or light earth sometimes there's sensations that are more fluid or cohesive the water element sometimes there's tingling vibrating pulsing air Sometimes there's numbness. So it's pretty simple, right? It's like simple, but not easy. The mind wanders off. It's too simple, we want it to be more complex. We know energetically that reactivity tends to move up in the body. You think about a basic startle response, we go, It moves up. So by bringing mindfulness and attention down into the extremities, starts to remind the system that it can flow, that it can release from the inside. And it's just like when we first practice mindfulness of breathing, doing it once is not gonna be it. It's all about the repetition. It's all about developing the relationship. And so we'll take that one and then tomorrow morning in the instructions we'll weave that together in what I call the pendulation practice. Pendulation means moving back and forth in attention. And we can work with that grounding um, for support in the body when there's pain in the meditation. So that one will be to be continued. So that we can get to the chorus line, the refrain. So this refrain connects with all four of the foundations of mindfulness. And it's really pointing to some of the things that we can see when we practice mindfulness. So from the sutta, in this way, in regard to the body, one abides contemplating the body internally, or one abides contemplating the body externally, or, one abides contemplating the body both internally and externally. One abides contemplating the nature of arising in the body. Or one abides contemplating the nature of passing away in the body. Or one abides contemplating the nature of both arising and passing away in the body. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in one to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. There is a body. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. So firstly we have internally, externally and both. So There's different ways that that can be explored and looked at and different teachers have different emphases. But, you know, there's certainly the internal part of the body and the external part of the body. But there's also the sense of internal this body, external other bodies. There's an interconnectivity. So I was re-remembering the first time that I really started to understand that potential of, oh yeah, this body and these bodies. And it actually happened at this retreat. Um, My goodness, I don't know. This retreat, uh, early 2000s, so the early years of this retreat. And unfortunately, I told you coming into the body was not an easy thing for me. And so, a lot of times I had to learn the hard way. And this retreat, I really learned the hard way. Because I came into the retreat and I was so ardent to practice. I was so excited. And I was really ready to wake up, whatever level was available. And uh, I completely ignored my body. So I arrived at the retreat. I mean, what are we? What is today, the end of day two? Does it feel like a week? Anyway, ended day two. And I was already doing like 20 hours of non-stop sitting and walking, like without pause, except for one meal a day. You know, it was like one of those retreats. I'm not recommending this, by the way. Every once in a while, a retreat manifests like that naturally, but it, to, be, to impose it can be quite violent. Um, so it turned out that it totally wasn't skillful from a physical level for me. And so what happened was... Uh, About day seven in the retreat, an old injury started flaring up. And it got to the point actually where, because I still didn't listen. So when your knee starts hurting, don't go, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to have that thing Heather had happen. Listen to your body at that point. Take care of your body at that point. Don't do what I did, which is ignore it for days. Okay, And so then I couldn't walk. So then I became um, a scooter yogi and i learned how to drive that scooter so slowly because i didn't want to disturb anybody you know? then i realized later i wasn't disturbing anybody but you know how the mind is we're always worried about something um and so i couldn't do walking meditation that whole retreat my teachers are like you know sweetheart it's okay if you want to go home this is really hard i was like why would i go home Like, I'm here to practice. This is what I'm practicing with. I'm practicing with not walking. a scooter. But then I get to walking meditation. I didn't know what to do. There were no instructions. So actually, I want to share with you some instructions. Alternative walking instructions for when a lot of walking meditation is not helpful for your body. If you practice long enough, it'll probably happen, you know. So what I did is I would sit out on that bench outside of interview room one. And i just sit there and i look out over the courtyard and the view. And instead of lifting my feet and moving my feet and placing my feet, I would do it with my hands. So again, you could try this if you're not feeling too still right now. So it's not just an idea. It's kind of in solidarity with, with any of us this retreat who are having trouble ambulating, you know, that we can do it in solidarity, that we lift the hand and feel the space. And let it float down and feel the contact on the other side. You can do it faster, slower, whatever helps you stay present. You could always do that. Even if ambulation isn't an issue. Maybe it just feels like it's simpler to just sit down and do that. That even walking at times is too much, right? Now no one will think you're weird. (laughs) It's all a little bit weird, the forms we're doing here. We're just kind of in the weird zone. All right. So then I would look out over the courtyard and I was thinking, um, Sharda, about the story you shared last night, you know, almost 40 years ago, remembering that man's walking meditation. And I have a story just like that. So there was this um, young man at the retreat. We sat at the retreat every year together for years. I sat right there. And he sat right there. So we were the bookends of the front of the hall for years. We both sat up really late at night. We were both night owls, you know. So sometimes we were just enjoying each other's company. Other times we were having little um, silent competitions about who could sit longer. Oops, I'm sure none of you never ever ever do that, right? Yeah, yeah, you know. Got to find some way to entertain the mind while we're here. hopeless right <laughs> so anyway he was out walking and uh, actually he was uh, trained as a dancer I didn't know that till later but um, you know wasn't surprising because the, the walking was so graceful and I was sitting there watching and I was just totally like the mood was so despondent I can't walk oh and walking meditation used to be my favorite posture to practice in in those years so and I couldn't walk And so I'm watching and it's like the mood is, oh, I can't walk, he can walk, I can't walk. And all of a sudden I started watching him walk and I could feel his walking in my body. I could feel each step. I could feel the movement of the body through space in this body sitting and that body walking. I remember that all these years later. We're definitely, um, we have our own respectful space here, but we're with others, we're together. So we can contemplate internally, externally and both. We can contemplate the body in the sensations of arising and passing and both. So instead of talking about it, just gonna leave another little space here, see, In the field of sensations that are labeled body, what's arising? What's passing? And the ear sense door arising and passing of the frog sounds. Those sounds tell me I'm on two month retreat. Here, not somewhere else. There is a body. I love this. Uh, this invitation into um, uh, releasing the uh, the complexity of being too tied to who I am, the complexity of self, into more of a flow of a process of being. There is a body can invite us into that. Anilayo puts it this way, says, without getting lost in associations or reactions, Just there is a body without getting lost in associations and reactions. So much ease potential there. So I actually use that as a kind of creative wisdom mental note sometimes in my practice. I'll just be moving around, things are happening, all of a sudden, oh, there is a body. It's like this, this is how it is. can use that. You can use your own wisdom refrains that invite you into that sense of beingness of the body instead of self of the body. One abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This real invitation into freedom. And also the investigation of ah, Where do I get caught? And where is there release? So it's both. Where do we get caught? Where is there release? What does it actually feel like to abide in release? So I say we do a little bit about unattended two postures. So we will. The Buddha was really clear that awakening happens in all four postures. Sitting, yes, but also standing, walking, and lying down. I think this is really important um, because we don't spend most of our time sitting. The awakening potential is always it's always. And so we have these two forms of sitting and walking meditation here as kind of the rhythm. It helps support the body, it helps support the energy, but please feel free and some of us already are very much including these other two postures. The standing posture um, will um, be taught kind of ongoing as part of the mindful movement that amana is leading. I really appreciate the, um, the tone and the style of how she's inviting um, us into body experience from the inside, slow, gentle. And so in the coming days, there are gonna be some really um, specific instructions about skillfulness of standing and mindful, compassionate presence. You know, please feel free to go, uh, engage that posture. Of course, when you're sitting here and you're totally falling asleep after lunch and your back's killing you, of course you're welcome to stand up for a little while. But make it its own postural practice instead of I'm standing up waiting to stop feel sleepy and stop having my backache so I can do the real practice sitting down. Forget it. Standing is the real practice right then. I wanted to share with you an enlightenment poem from one of the nuns from the time of the Buddha. And her enlightenment happened moving into the standing posture. This example, awakening in all postures. Her name is Mithakali. Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way. My passions used me. I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then as I sat in my little cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. We don't know which posture. We don't know which moment but we have so many more potential moments if we include all four postures. So last but certainly not least, lying down. At one point in that injury in the retreat, um, it was even too uncomfortable to sit. So I couldn't sit, I couldn't walk, I couldn't stand for long periods of time. I'm like, how do I even stay in this retreat? Like, I I don't know how to be here. The forms aren't working for me. And I'm not, no, I'm not the only one that has experienced this. This is why I'm sharing this story. The forms aren't working for me. And I was like, I can't sit, I can't walk, I can't stand. <gasps> I could lie down. And I had never heard anybody give any lying down instructions. Basically, all I had ever heard at that point was, well, lie down if you need to, sweetheart, but, you know, don't worry if you fall asleep. Just try to wake up and make it work. It kind of felt like some half-hearted thing or something. It's not. Not at all. When we have a huge amount of ardency for our own spiritual path, we don't necessarily get sleepy lying down. I haven't found sleepiness to be a problem lying down, just to throw in a totally different flavor from what we usually hear. Really haven't found it that way. But if you need a little more energy when you're lying down, here's a few pointers. Some of us are in this retreat, some of us will in other retreats. Number one, don't do lying down meditation in the same posture you sleep in. Okay, it's obvious, right? But important to name. Uh, secondly, uh, if it's possible to lay down um, with your knees up in some fashion, you know, whether it's kind of feet on the floor and knees up or on a chair or something, it helps energetically. You can certainly meditate with your eyes open that helps but another one is the same alternative walking posture when you're laying down just lifting, placing, lifting, placing while you're doing laying down meditation that brings in much more engagement you know and can keep the lying down meditation uh, more juicy and um, energized right So those are just a few kind of Uh, possibilities in this lying down posture. But I really think whatever posture we're in, if we really um, kind of come back to our center of, yeah, this can support my journey, then it can. And if we believe that it's some secondary practice or that it doesn't support us or we should be doing something else or something better, then we're not as well supported. It's really that simple. Not easy. So ending quote by Ajahn Mun, who Donald mentioned the the first evening, kind of one of the, the founding elders of the current cycle of the Thai forest tradition. He said, in your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Examine its nature, see its impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body, while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of mind can shine forth, timeless and delivered. So I thank you for all of the care and the respect that you bring to this vehicle of awakening. It supports us here, but also when we take care of this body, we're so much more likely to be in tune with taking care of the earth body, of taking care of each other's bodies it grows out in a ripple of blessings, this mindfulness of the body. Thank you.